Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome everyone to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Are we in a state of emergency or not in the province of Ontario? Well, technically we are until June 2nd, but the weather was great this past weekend and the Victoria Day weekend is coming up and guess what? It sure doesn't look like too many people are adhering to the protocols. That, plus the latest chapter in the Premier's new fight with the Prime Minister and fresh polling from Greg Lyle on whether the progressive Conservative government has stopped the bleeding on its popularity. It's Tuesday, May 18th, so let's get to it. JMM, we are, I guess, finally experiencing these days some of the nicest weather we've had yet this year, and as a result, people are getting out. There may be a stay-at-home order in place, but if this past weekend was any indication, I'd say precious few people are following that order. (laughs) This is something we talk about in this week's On Poly newsletter, which we encourage people to subscribe to as well. But it's all raising one pretty obvious question, and that is, have people stopped listening to their provincial government as it relates to following COVID-19 protocols. What do you think? Uh, You know, it's always dangerous to extrapolate from anecdote, um, but I actually did some roaming around the city this weekend, uh, which now that I say that out loud, I realized I was breaking the law. Um, I'm going to I'm going to bring in a citizen's arrest right now. Right. I know you. You're a decent guy. It's okay. I'll I'll cut you slack this time. Uh, I appreciate that, officer. but I also wasn't alone, right? Uh, you know, I, in my particular case, I, I biked um, much of the length of uh, Danforth and Bloor here in Toronto, one of the city's main uh, east-west roads, and, uh, you know, saw lots of people who were out uh, like me, uh, out and about, enjoying uh, really, really lovely weather. Uh, as you might predict, uh, huge lineups uh, at the ice cream shops. Uh, and uh, I even saw what looked an awful lot like people who, who might have been sitting at patios if that had been legal, and instead it was just clumps of people congregating outside of the doors of bars. <laughs> um, I, I couldn't, you know, I was in motion. I couldn't necessarily see whether people were, were actually holding beers, but it's certainly what it looked like from uh, my vantage point. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of that going on right now. Uh, everybody that I've spoken to certainly, um, let's say everybody not currently in the cabinet, (laughs) uh, (laughs) acknowledges that the closure of outdoor amenities in Ontario uh, really doesn't have a, you know, the strongest basis in science, let me put it that way. Um, Yeah, I I, I almost don't know what else to say about this, except that, you know, I think on the big stuff, um, you know, the few places that I went indoors briefly over the weekend, people were still being serious about masking. Uh, Hell, most of the people I saw out on the street were masked uh, even outdoors. Uh, So, you know, I think on the big stuff, people are uh, still doing the right thing. But yeah, they seem to be uh, tuning out some of the provincial uh, law at the moment. Yeah, and let's just be clear here. We're not saying this because... Uh, We're trying to be, uh, you know, fools about the thing. Uh, The reality is the ICUs, the intensive care units of this province, are still over 800 spots taken right now, which is well higher than, you know, where they want that. They love it to be half or a third of that much before they really start to roll back protocols. So it's not like we're out of the woods or anything like that. But, but I think you hit on the point there a moment ago when you said some of the decisions coming out of the cabinet these days don't seem to be based in science. And that is odd considering that for the last 13 months, they've been saying that science is going to be the backbone and the basis for every decision they make. So, I don't know, 
That's all I'm trying to say. <laughs> no, and I think that's it, right? Um, you know, the good news uh, is that with vaccines where they are, you know, uh, the, the numbers there are really, really good. And so, you know, I think that uh, some of the things that might have seemed uh, risky uh, six months or even a year ago uh, really just don't have the same potential for harm anymore. Yeah. Well, you've touched on vaccines, so let's stay there because there's been some pretty good news. On that front lately, the province has been regularly hitting more than 100,000 doses of vaccine administered every day. That is a really good number. And as of today, anyone over the age of 18 will be able to register through the provincial portal. So let's get the update. Where are we at on vaccines altogether? You know, this is not like the most uh, important uh, provincial indicator, uh, but it's something that happened uh, over the weekend. And I I think it tells you a lot about where we are right now. Uh, There were two uh, really big mass vaccination clinics, uh, one in Peel, one in Toronto. Uh, The the one in Peel ran through basically all of Saturday and Sunday. The one in Toronto was just on Sunday. Uh, Over the weekend, collectively, they administered something like 17,000 vaccines. Uh, The entire province of Ontario did about that many vaccines on February 28th, which <laughs> maybe it's I'm getting older, but that doesn't feel like that long ago anymore. Mm. Um, and I think that gives you a sense of how far we've come. Uh, more than half of people in the province over 18 now have their first shot. Uh, we still have a long way to go on getting people their second shots, but that is coming along too. Uh, by the end of the week, it's likely to be more like 60% of people uh, have uh, their first shot. Uh, sorry, that's people over 18. Uh we are starting to talk about what you know how to get uh, people uh, who are you know 12 to 17 their first shots. That is looking like that's going to uh, start registering uh, end of May, early June. But things are moving fast now, and and it's having the effect that we want to see uh, in terms of daily new cases. Uh, both Toronto and Peel are down by half from their peaks in April. Uh, just uh, really uh, fast, well, not fast declines. It's been like six weeks, but big declines moving in the right direction. Uh, and we're seeing some regions go back to, and you know, obviously there's these are like rural and northern regions primarily, uh, but we're seeing some of them report days without even a single case. So, you know, it's, <laughs> it is still a pandemic. Uh, there are still outbreaks happening. Um, in particular, uh, things are not looking great in Timmins right now. They actually had uh, the most new cases per capita uh, in uh, their numbers on Sunday uh, of any region in the, the, the province. But Overall, uh, across the province, uh, right now, things are mostly headed in the right direction. Yeah, I I like to remind people that uh, a year ago when you and I were talking, there were 200 cases per day, which just seems like forever ago. Uh, But then again, two months ago, or maybe even less, we were at 4,000 plus cases a day in the province. We're now down around 2,000 positive tests a day in the province. So that is clearly going in the right direction. Now, let me follow up on one other thing with you, because I've got an 18-year-old daughter. So needless to say, I was keeping an eye on when she became eligible uh, for her vaccination, uh, which, which she got today. Uh, And I'm glad to see that she got it today. But frankly, we weren't expecting it. We weren't expecting her to be eligible until closer to the end of the month. So what happened? 
Uh, so two things seem to be going on here. Uh, one is that we really just have a, a huge number of uh, vaccines coming in this week. Uh, 2.2 million doses, according to the Ministry of Health. Uh, that's uh, from both uh, Pfizer and Moderna. Uh, I was trying to confirm uh, before we recorded this uh, whether that is in fact the largest single uh, volume that we've ever received in a week. I'm reasonably confident it is, uh, but I, I, I don't have that uh, absolutely certified. Um, but it's also more than was expected. Uh, and, you know, it's it's rare for us to get uh, that kind of um, uh, good news lately. But uh, apparently uh, the feds, and this is um, uh, Minister of Public Procurement Anita Anand, uh, negotiated with Pfizer to actually move up some of next week's shipment to accommodate for the Victoria Day long weekend. You know, next week, uh, is, is likely to be a, a shorter week in terms of working hours um, for the government. So they are moving some of next week's shipment up to this week. The combination of that plus a Moderna shipment has just this, this enormous volume of doses landing on us. And uh, so that's one thing. The other thing that is happening is uh, that the province has ended the prioritization of hotspot postal codes that was uh, largely but not entirely focused in the GTA. And they've gone back to a straight sort of per capita distribution of vaccines around the province. Um, you know, some people in Toronto and Peel are um, not understand or not not unreasonably uh, upset about, you know, that this, this is effectively a, a cut in the number of doses uh, they were seeing. Uh, but for uh, parts of the province that were not in those hotspot uh, uh, postal codes, uh, this is going to be a very large increase in uh, their vaccine supply. Uh, so I think it made sense uh, from where uh, they were in terms of the supply right now and, and how that's getting allocated around the province. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it, it seems to be a surprise to a lot of people. I mean, just last week um, on one of the technical briefings that we had, you know, I asked if there was any discussion of uh, opening up eligibility uh, this early uh, and was told no. Uh, so clearly uh, they are um, uh, <laughs> rolling with the punches, I guess, uh, in the pandemic still. Been plenty of punches, that's for sure. Any idea why they changed their mind so quickly on this? You know, I think one thing is simply just the the surprise uh, volume that came in this week. Um, you know, that's their stated reason, and and I think it makes a certain amount of sense. Uh, but I, we had also gotten to the point in the government's plan, and you know, people who've been paying attention over the last few months, you know, there was the the straight sort of you know. Uh, going down the age cohort uh, process. But then there were always these exceptions, like, you know, if you had certain medical conditions or uh, workers who couldn't work from home uh, or uh, people who lived in hotspot postal codes. Uh, and we had actually gotten basically to the end of that process. And the only thing left to do was to sort of um, keep climbing down the age ladder, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. um, but it was just for uh, people uh, 39 and younger, basically. And so I, it sure looks like the government basically decided that there was not a, a whole lot of um, percentage in, in very tightly managing uh, the next few weeks of the process. Uh, you know, it's, it's confusing and, and uh, administratively difficult for some people. Uh, so they've just made it uh, <laughs> open access for people uh, 18 plus uh, starting today. 39 and younger, 39 and younger. Does, does that include you anymore? Uh, no, no. I was uh, eligible uh, as of last week, but I, I happen to have hit a, uh, uh, 
a, a clinic uh, in my neighborhood that uh, uh, gave me a Pfizer shot like two weeks ago now. I actually knew you were no longer 39 and younger. I just wanted to rub in the fact that you're becoming an old fogey like me now. So there you go. Well, I mean, I tried to get uh, an AstraZeneca shot, but uh, unlike you, I wasn't eligible in the very first wave. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boom. Yeah, that's uh, the last time I play straight man to you. Okay. Um, Well, let me just touch on some polling here, because the Angus Reid Organization does do some public opinion surveys on this from time to time. Uh, particularly now around the uh, the issue of vaccine hesitancy and AstraZeneca for all of the reasons uh, that we've heard about. And it showed that nearly half of the people who receive their AZ shot say they are pleased with their decision. And you can include me in that half. I got the AZ shot and I'm pleased with it. Uh, 44% say while Pfizer and Moderna would have been better, they are still pretty happy. Only 2% say they totally regret their decision to go for the AZ shot. 2%. Last week, Canada received more than 600,000 doses of AZ. Has there been any more scuttlebutt from the Ontario government that you've picked up about whether they will let someone who's already received their AZ shot get a second dose? (laughs) Uh, Nothing formal yet. Uh, The Minister of Health was asked about that uh, a few different times on Monday and even before. Uh, And the short answer is that um, it, it looks like uh, most people who received uh, an AZ shot will be able to get a second AZ shot if they want to, um, based on the shipments that are coming in and how much of that is, is uh, destined for Ontario. Um, people should obviously talk to their doctor about what's the, the best approach for them. Uh, but the other um, option that is going to be presented, uh, it looks like, is that people who got their uh, AstraZeneca shot as a first dose uh, may be offered a Pfizer or Moderna shot as a second dose. And there's uh, studies that are still sort of um, ongoing and in in the process of publishing about the various effectiveness uh, of of these different approaches. Uh, So far, it sure looks like uh, both approach, both approaches are are very safe, but uh, the uh, the Ministry of Health is still uh, waiting on you know formal sort of publication of advice about uh, what to do. Um, the problem, of course, is that you know once again we've got a ticking clock here. Um, the the province is currently uh, in possession of some AstraZeneca doses that have an expiry date. Uh, some are going to expire at the end of this month. Uh, some will expire early in June. And, you know, it would be, <laughs> I, I think it would be a real shame if, if any of those doses expire. It, you know, Canada did, did a lot of work to get these doses uh, in the time frame we did. And there are plenty of other countries out there uh, who don't have the, um, the the vaccine supply that Canada currently enjoys. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I'm actually kind of surprised we haven't seen a decision from the Ministry of Health yet because it frankly doesn't seem like there's that much left to learn before they make a decision. But they are waiting for more formal advice. Mm -hmm. And I think just for the record, I think both Premier Doug Ford and Health Minister Christine Elliott They've both received one jab of AstraZeneca. Is that not the case? Uh, that is, in fact, the case. And uh, also the prime minister and his wife. <laughs> right, right. And so far, all of the above uh, without any adverse consequences that we can see. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Moving on. For about 13 months, the federal, provincial, and municipal governments in Ontario seem to be getting along quite well. They understood that in the midst of a global pandemic that was killing thousands of people, 
Mm, now maybe wasn't the best time to try to score cheap political points, but rather roll up their sleeves and just get the job done. Well, obviously, those days are over. Have a listen to this. But one thing threatens all the progress we've made. One thing threatens the summer everyone hopes to have. And that's the weak and porous border measures that the federal government has kept in place. That's Premier Doug Ford, of course, saying only one thing, only one thing is responsible for whatever difficulties we're in the midst of right now as it relates to COVID-19. The provincial government has decided in its wisdom that despite the fact that cross-border transmission accounts for fewer than 10% of COVID-19 positive test cases in this province, they are going to spend 90% of their focus on this issue. JMM, what's going on here? (laughs) Well, we were talking earlier about how uh, the province's focus doesn't seem to be... uh, totally grounded in science. Uh, And here we have a case of, uh, if not pure politics, then pretty close to pure politics, (laughs) uh, driving, uh, frankly, the agenda of the Premier's office. Um, This seems like an attempt to, you know, either uh, simply distract uh, responsibility uh, away from uh, the provincial government, uh, or it's uh, an attempt to try and just create a distraction based on picking a fight with Ottawa. And uh, Lord knows, uh, Doug Ford would not be the first Premier of Ontario to uh, try and win a, a, a political contest by picking a fight with Ottawa. It happens. But, uh, you know, this is, um, uh, I, I don't know if this is unique historically, but this, this certainly uh, seems notable, especially in the context of, uh, you know, 14 months where I think the province and the feds had uh some uh, a surprising amount of of uh, what do you want to say cordial goodwill? <laughs> yeah, which doesn't always happen when you've got one party represented in on Parliament Hill and another party represented at Queen's Park. And the comment we just heard from Doug Ford was given at last week's news conference. If you've been watching TV at all lately, you probably will have noticed that they're almost election style attack ads that they're being run by the Ontario PC Party against the federal government. I can tell you this is really very unusual. I won't say unprecedented because I think I can recall previous governments running ad campaigns against the feds on other issues like, you know, why aren't you spending more on health care, that kind of thing. But that was often government to government. This is a political party buying what sure looks like a political attack ad um, for what are clearly partisan political purposes during a global pandemic. And, uh, I think that's unprecedented in my lifetime since I wasn't around for the Spanish flu. But I do wonder whether um, this can stem the tide of the government's uh, popularity downfall. Uh, they certainly hope it's the case, which is why they're doing it in the first place. But I don't know. You got any thoughts on the advisability of doing it? it, uh, it it's confusing to me. I mean, uh, we're coming up on a year from the next election. And instead of trying to uh, define uh, the people who will be their opponents in the next election, whether that's Andrew Horvath or Stephen Del Duca or Mike Schreiner, for that matter, you've got the PC Party of Ontario running attack ads against somebody who, win or lose, they will not be running against in the next election. It's it's really confusing to me. Um, 
here's what U of T epidemiologist Colin Furness said. Uh, he called uh, the focus on border issues, uh, quote, uh, despicable, reflecting an unwillingness or inability to take responsibility. Um, he also suggested this was more about the government trying to um, rewrite the narrative, which is uh, another way of saying they're trying to change the channel uh, on their unpopularity. Uh, he urged a singular focus on getting more people vaccinated rather than uh, picking these, uh, let's, let's say, it, pointless fights. Hmm. It does take a certain amount of, I believe the technical term is chutzpah, uh, <laughs> to to purchase. Um, I don't know how much these ads are costing, but I think we can assume there's tens of thousands of dollars of ads to run against the federal government and against Justin Trudeau in in particular. I mean, he he is the personal target in these ads. When Mr. Trudeau just wrote you a check for one point seven billion dollars for an LRT in Hamilton and billions more. Uh, for, you know, the Ontario line and the extending the Young Street line up into York region and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but if you can, boy, I don't know, if you can get away with it, all right, fine. This seems to be such a fact-free zone sometimes. Uh, at last week's briefing, the Solicitor General said, Ontarians have done their part. They've stayed home to ensure no transmission of the virus. Now it's up to the feds to do their part. Well, um, can I do a little fact-checking here? I mean, <laughs> as we've already pointed out, lots of people are not staying home, which accounts for a significant proportion of the 2,500 or so positive test cases we're still getting on a daily basis, or certainly between 2,000 and 2,500. Uh, but this is the reality of politics, I guess, in the 21st century. You just say something over and over and over and over and over, and even <laughs> if it's not particularly accurate, you know, some people are going to believe it. It's kind of disappointing, actually. You know, you mentioned the... Um uh, billions of dollars in transit funding that uh, the Liberal government, the federal government uh, announced last week. And, uh, you know, it's just one of these things that I find so um, interesting about the political context right now. You know, if you've got, you know, let's, let's imagine a voter, right? Uh, a, a voter who they've got a kid in school. Uh, they they haven't been to work in uh, you know a year, a year and a half, um, but they used to commute on the TTC. Uh, they probably see if you live in Toronto, they probably or any big city, frankly, uh, they see uh, local municipal issues on the TV as much as they see anything else. And uh, you know, go down that list and like, the federal government has given money to make schools safer. They had a, an unprecedented bailout of municipalities and transit agencies uh, last year. And now, you know, uh, Justin Trudeau has announced billions more dollars for transit building uh, in uh, the GTA and, and Hamilton. And I just think, you know, every time this government wants to pick a fight with the federal government, Justin Trudeau gets to show up with a bag of money and say, hey, here's what I'm doing to make your life better. And Doug Ford is yelling about how I'm not doing my part. And, you know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not a pollster. Uh, I'm not, uh, I've never had to run a political campaign. I'm sure people, I'm sure smart people know what they're doing uh, in a sense. But uh, the last year has been uh, very instructive for me in the sense of... I. I I think voters see see this stuff and, and they process it in just a totally different way than people who are, you know, neck deep in politics, you know, every single day of their lives. Well, we can just add a couple of other facts to this. And that is that at the moment, Justin Trudeau's Liberal Party federally is seven to 10 points 
according to the latest several surveys that I've seen, seven to ten points ahead of the conservative opposition. Meantime, Doug Ford, who was that far ahead of his opposition in Ontario, is now running anywhere from, I don't know what, five to seven points behind. So, okay, everybody, you do the math. One of the reasons pollsters love surveying the public to get their opinions of things political is that things can change so dramatically so quickly. Where it might take years to see a change in public opinion related to a product on the marketplace, swings in opinion about politicians can literally change overnight. For more on this, we're joined by Greg Lyle. He leads the Innovative Research Group, and he joins us now from Gibson's British Columbia. Greg, first things first. Weather forecast, please, in Gibson's. What's it doing out there? I'm sorry to say it's a beautiful sunny day. Now that's okay. We're happy for you. That's nice. Excellent. Okay. Tell us this. You're in the field every week taking the temperature of Ontarians. What kinds of things are you trying to find out? Uh, we look at three things. We look at uh, key benchmarks, so things like government approval, who are you going to vote for, what do you think of the leaders. We look at events. Uh, so we'll ask people, what have you read, seen, or heard lately, and what the impact of that was. We'll test things like the budget, and we'll, um, if we're lucky and we get the timing right, we're able to get reaction to things like um, COVID-19 announcements. And then the third thing that we look at is groups of voters. And so everybody groups voters by demographics, but we also group them by attitudes. So we look at shared values. Um, we look at an economic segmentation to identify the struggling middle class voter, uh, those sort of things. When you asked people if the election were held today, which party would you vote for? For the longest time, the answer to that question was the Progressive Conservative Party and Doug Ford. They were in a comfortable first place for many years. If you ask that question today, what would the results be? Uh, the, well, it's a horse race right now. Um, we had actually, prior to COVID-19, we actually had the Liberals ahead. Um, and then uh, as uh, the government responded to COVID-19, over just a couple of months, uh, Doug Ford's numbers improved quite significantly, and the Tories uh, started to emerge as the front runners in the race. Uh, but in the last couple of months, and in particular in the last month, we've seen the numbers get a lot closer. And what do you think has been the reason for that? Well, it's, it's very clearly COVID-19, the way the government's been managing it. Um, and the numbers really started to, there were two key moments. So one moment uh, was uh, the whole issue of the St. Bart's uh, vacation at Christmas time. Um, we happen to be in field with leadership numbers, so not just favorables, but um, who's most who's the uh, who's best at providing strong leadership, who's most competent, who cares about people like you, things like that. And so we saw the lead flip uh, right away. Uh, the Tories had been ahead prior to the St. Bart's controversy. The Liberals moved ahead once that happened. Ford's empathy numbers actually held the same. So cares about people like me, that number didn't go down. But his competence and strong leadership numbers dropped six or seven points. Then the second moment was at the start of April. And so the the, the famous Friday press conference was sort of the, the final straw. But the numbers have been dropping quite significantly in the two weeks prior to that. Well, let me follow up on that, because, yes, the famous Friday news conference that you're referring to saw the premier bring in a whole lot of measures that that the public simply would not accept. They rose up and mutinied uh, the very next day. 
and the Premier walked some of it back and then apologized. Do we know whether the apology actually worked? Uh, it did to some degree, um, but there's still some underlying weakness there. So, And, and I really thought um, there were two great media questions over the past couple months. Um, the first one was actually from one of your colleagues, John McGrath, when he asked the question, um, am I reading these numbers wrong or are you predicting a disaster? Um, and then the second one was Laura Stone when she asked uh, Premier Ford, what is he apologizing for? And um, and he said he was apologizing for moving too fast. He didn't say he was a- apologizing for not responding to that February warning at that press conference that had the, are you predicting a disaster comment? And so what we see is that a lot of people are taking contrition at face value. Um, about 40, 41% agree that the premier's taken uh, responsibility for his mistakes and is trying to do better. And that's a big win for the Tories because in our multi-party plurality first past the post system, um, you, you basically can win at 40%. Um, so if you're a Tory election strategist and you're at 40% um, accepting the apology, you're, you're feeling okay. But what's scarier for them is that well over 70% believe that the Premier and the government were warned that if they didn't take action in February, that, that we were going to see the sort of numbers we have seen in March and April. And uh, secondly, uh, over 50%, well over 50%, close to 60 uh, agree that uh, Doug Ford and the government are directly responsible for the spike in cases we've seen because they failed to take dramatic action. So to the degree that COVID remains an issue, and if cases were to move up again, although they've, they've been coming down, um, that would bring people back to Laura Stone's question, is he actually apologizing for the right things? But if the numbers of cases keep coming down, which of course we all hope, um, then Ford will be able to move on to other issues. Now, you just hit us with three very interesting numbers, which don't necessarily conflict with each other, but they do raise the question of which of those three numbers would be the most significant metric for the public to consider as they weigh their decision a year from now at election time. Now, I don't know whether you can apply weighting to any of those numbers to say this one's far more important in the public's mind than that one. But if you can, can you share what that is? Well, the apology one is going to be the the critical question. I think the other two questions, though, the ones about, you know, was he warned and is he responsible for not responding to that warning? If those end up being framed as the key ballot question, right? Do you want a leader who was warned and failed to act? Or do you want a leader that is prepared to do what's needed? Um, That could be a problem for Ford. Um, But that election's a year from now. And um, people are paying attention right now. So it, and that's a really important thing to understand. I mean, often we'll look at these sort of between election polls and we'll say, well, you know, really it's only partisans paying attention. Um, yeah, there's some dramatic ups and downs, but the swing voters aren't paying attention and the bases aren't affected. So really this doesn't matter. But what we're seeing right now is that almost anyone who's likely to vote is paying attention to what the government's doing right now. Awareness of uh, red scene heard for the provincial government is running around 80% in Ontario. Uh, The comparable number for the federal government, which actually has an election 
potentially in a couple of months, uh, is only 50%. Um, and so there's a, there's a really big difference between um, people's interest in following the ups and downs of federal politics right now and their interest in following the ups and downs of provincial politics. And no doubt that's directly related to um, the spike in the cases and the concern about community spread. And people see this much more as a provincial issue than as a federal issue. I've always used the line over the years, though, that polls are are actually wonderful indications of what the public were thinking yesterday. They are not predictive yes. in telling you what the public is going to think a year from now. Would you stand by that? In other words, can we take the numbers you've just given us and, and, and say these are baked in and there's not much anybody can do about that? No, I, I think that they're very dynamic. I mean, that's that's basically the premise of a tracking poll, which is a, what we, we run. We believe that um, the winds of public debate, what we hear, uh, either from our friends and acquaintances, what we experience in life or what we see watching TVO, um, all those things come together and react with our underlying predispositions and our current point of view and create change. So um, there's plenty of slip between cup and lip right now. Um, the other thing that's important to bear in mind is that there are, are two dimensions to what goes on as the numbers move between now and the election. One is persuasion. Can, um, can someone get you to change your mind about something or someone? And the wild card in that is Stephen Del Duca, right? Stephen Del Duca is, a, even though he's a, a tried and true former cabinet minister, been around a long time, is essentially unknown, particularly to swing voters. Um, and so whoever, you know, the law of the jungle is either beaten, the law of politics is defined or be defined. Uh, whoever defines Stephen Del Duca is going to have a big edge in this election. Um, and then uh, the second the second dimension of this is framing. So if the if what a swing voters is asking themselves as they go to vote is who's best at protecting frontline workers in the healthcare system, the answer is probably not going to be Doug Ford. It's probably going to be the liberals or the NDP. If the question is, um, who's going to help me get ahead in life? Well, then uh, Doug Ford has a much better chance because um, he has a reputation as, uh, as being a guy who worries about the average person. And when he hears of a concern, rolls up his sleeve, gets, gets into his pickup truck and goes to do something about it. Just to be clear, though, I want to make sure that I'm crystal on this one. You're saying, are you saying that neither the liberals, whom Stephen Del Duca leads, nor the progressive conservatives, whom he hopes to defeat, neither one of those two parties has really firmly defined Stephen Del Duca yet. No, it, not at, they, they absolutely have not. And that's not unexpected in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, who cares about someone who might govern one day when you have a crisis where the decisions of what the government is doing today matter? Um, I do think that if you look at the narratives that the that the liberals have been pushing versus the NDP, that the NDP have been a little bit smarter, right? So a week or so ago, the competing headlines from the liberals and the NDP were NDP has a five-point plan they want the government to take to make Ontario safer. The liberals said uh, that the premier should resign. Well, you know, opposition calling for premier to resign, not very exciting, but five things that might make me safer, I might be a bit more interested in that. And so, um, you know, it's, it's very hard for uh, the NDP because they have the smallest base within the electorate. But um, 
it's not a given that uh, just because people want to defeat Doug Ford, that they'll all flock to Stephen Del Duca. Well, let me follow up on that. And let's let's finish up by looking at the NDP, because this has been one of the most curious things about the New Democratic Party over the past few years. They had a pretty strong uh, 2018 election campaign in which they went from third to official opposition, a robust 40-member caucus. However, as you point out, they've now fallen back to their more traditional third place in the polls, uh, despite the fact that they're only, I don't know what, uh, what are they, 22, 23 seats away from forming their own majority government. And the Liberals, who were utterly thrashed in the last Ontario election, they only have eight seats at the legislature. The leader doesn't have a seat. The leader is not well known. They're in first place in, in much of the recent polling. I, help us understand why the, the NDP, which sort of is supposed to be the government in waiting, right? They're the official opposition. They're the government in waiting, but they're back in third and the Liberals are in first. How does that happen? Right. So the last election was um, a situation in which uh, the Liberal Party, through their record, pushed their own voters away. So uh, parties have, have what we call brand identity, which is essentially brand. Um, um, and when you look at the party brands, more people wake up in the morning feeling like liberals in Ontario than any other party. And that was even true when they were getting trounced on election day. It's just that almost half the people that woke up feeling like liberals on election day voted NDP because they wanted to send a message to the Liberal Party that what they were seeing wasn't good enough and they wanted better. Um, but they didn't change their underlying allegiance. They didn't vote NDP, go home, and wake up the next day feeling like New Democrats. They woke up the next day still feeling like Liberals. But Liberals that had got a chip off their shoulder, got something off their chest, and were, were willing to go home. And over the, the probably six months following the election, uh, little by little, more and more of the liberals came home. So the challenge for the NDP is that they always start behind. The only way they can win is with defectors. They must knock people that feel like liberals away from the liberals and into their camp. Now, one thing they have on their side is um, Andrea Horvath. She is very well regarded. And what's happened? I mean, she's going into her fourth election yes. now. Um, every time she fights an election, her numbers go up. And then, as all opposition leaders do when the election's over, she borrows Harry Potter's cloak of invisibility, disappears from the stage, and people start forgetting her. Not for lack of trying, just because that's the way the world works. Politics is cruel. Um, but again, three times now, the election starts and she goes up in favorables. Um, and so that's the big problem the liberals have, that the alternative to the liberals for center-left voters is a very charismatic, uh, proven competitor. Well, that does uh, okay. Let me, uh, false call. I thought I thought we were going to finish up on that last question, but you said something there to me that requires one more follow up, and that is, you know, obviously, if you're a New Democrat right now and you see that you ran a good campaign in 2018, your leader is well liked and well respected by the people of Ontario. You've brought up all the right issues, right? I mean, the NDP was banging the drum hard on long-term care and the government's failure to do what was required to keep people in long-term care safe. They've raised the right issues at the right time. They're not being rewarded for it. So what is the road ahead for them to try to become government for just the second time in Ontario history? Well, I mean, the reality um, for 
opposition parties outside of elections is it's very hard to move the numbers. Um, it's really the, the election itself that is the key window. That doesn't mean they shouldn't keep trying, but realistically, it's very hard to do. And very, they're very much in the same position that the Tories were in 1995 when they did the common sense revolution. They started in third. And then they, and at that point in time, people had decided that they were going to defeat the NDP. And so they had to frame a question to which they were a better answer than the liberals. And their ballot question was, who's for real change? And they were able to, to, to beat the liberals on that. So the NDP have got to find issues that put the Tories and the liberals on the same side of the spectrum. It's going to be a challenge for the NDP to frame, um, the liberals as not enough change, not the right change, but that's what they have to do. Hmm. Now there's another way to go, um, which is essentially what the Tories did to Dalton McGuinty in 1999, um, and what happened to Stephen Dion and Michael Ignatieff, because federally, Dion and Ignatieff were in exactly the same position as Del Duca. Um, they had more identifiers. There were more people loyal to the liberals than to any other party, all else being equal, they should have been able to win. But in both those elections, the, their opponents, all their opponents, were able to frame Dion and Ignatieff as not up to the job, just like uh, the Harris people did to McGinty in 1999. And so if the liberals can, um, uh, if, if the liberals are able to frame Del Duca, if they're able to take the opportunity of, you know, the, the 50 plus percent that think uh, that the premier is responsible for the spike in COVID right now and put him at the front of that parade um, and and get people to like him because he's saying what they're saying, um, then it'll be hard for the NDP to pull ahead. But if he remains undefined and, and either the Tories or the NDP are able to define him as not up to the job as another Dion and Ignat- or Ignatiev, um, then, uh, then the NDP have a chance, but it, it's always going to be an outside shot for the NDP. In which case, if you're if you're Stephen Del Duca and you want to make sure you f- frame yourself, as in tell the people who you are, before your opponents get to tell the people who they think you are. At what point? We're a year away from the election now, a little uh, a year and a couple of weeks. At what point do you start taking out ads that you have to pay for to tell people who you are? Well, and, and that is the toughest choice a strategist has to make. Um, so everyone's paying attention right now, right? Like they, they are. So this is not a bad time to run ads. Um, now, the downside is that people will start forgetting, right? But they tend to forget facts, not feelings. And so if they can establish positive feelings towards Del Duca now, um, and then they, they back off, Um, those feelings won't fade as fast as the facts, and the election is just a year away. Gotcha. Greg, this was fascinating. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you. That's Greg Lyle, head of the Innovative Research Group, coming to us from Gibson's British Columbia. And we always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have those for you immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and any other advice to make this show a little bit better. You can also shoot us an email at onpoliticsattvo.org. Here now, my quote of the week, and this is Doug Ford from last week's news conference answering the question everybody wants to know, which is, what do we have to do to ensure we can prevent the state of emergency from continuing into the summer? We must keep doing what we're doing 
and what's working. We need to do everything in our power to protect this summer for all Ontarians. My goal is to have the most normal July and August possible. Obviously, that won't mean large sporting events or concerts, but if we manage the next few weeks properly, I believe that we can have things in a very good place this summer. That's Premier Doug Ford at last week's news conference. Uh, my quote of the week is from Minister of Health Christine Elliott. Uh, she was speaking at Queen's Park on Monday about uh, the possible future of uh, summer camps and other outdoor amenities in Ontario. Uh, we know that the uh, stay-at-home order will uh, end on June the 2nd, and so unless it's renewed again, but uh, we are anticipating that uh, there may be other uh, events, summer camps, golf, tennis, other things uh, may be available as of June 2nd or perhaps before, depending on the clinical evidence that we receive, what's happening with our hospitalizations and our intensive care numbers. So there's a number of factors that we need to consider, but it's, it's being reviewed on a very regular basis. That was Christine Elliott, and uh, if you missed it, there's just the tiniest hint that the current stay-at-home order might be lifted before June 2nd, when it is currently scheduled to expire. Uh, not that I want to get anybody's hopes up. <laughs> no, you better not, because if it doesn't come off, they're going to come after you, my friend. They're going to come after you. Well, I expect <laughs> you to, you know, put your body between <laughs> me and our angry I'll, I'll do whatever crowds. I can to, to, to protect you. But, uh, you know, I'm not as tough as I used to be. Let me just say that. Because as you pointed out earlier, I'm so ancient now. So anyway. <laughs> oh, this is coming back to haunt me now. <laughs> yes, it will. Yes, it will. And so ends episode 112 of the On Poly podcast. It was produced by Katie O'Connor with editing this week from Donnie Swanson. Welcome aboard, Donnie. And production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. JMM, let's conclude as we always do, as my dad likes to say, Stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. <laughs>